Welcome to West Quasset Chapel's podcast. For more information, visit us online at westquassettchapel.com. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians is where we're going to be this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. It's page 792 in the church Bibles. Thank you for being here this morning. It's a pleasure to see you if you're online to that same end. Glad that we have that kind of means these days. I hope everyone had a really good Christmas. It was just good to be able to do Christmas again and thank you, thanking God for his care and his provision and all those bits and pieces of the holiday. Verse 18, chapter 1, 1 Corinthians. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts Boast in the Lord, chapter 2, verse 1. And so, it was, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Amen. Let's, let's pray as we should. Father, as we close out this year, this final Sunday of, of 2021, from the bottom of our hearts, we want to thank you for the merciful ways that you have cared for us, you have carried us, you have forgave us, protected us, helped us, and all the promised ways that you have kept for us. And God, maybe the best thing that you did is an ever-growing awareness of the great security and the great value we have only because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He is the hero of our story. He is the head of this church. All things were made by him and for him, and he alone he alone holds all things together. Indeed, our very life 
is in his hands. And so, God, now as your word is preached, show us ourselves, show us our Savior, help me in my weakness, help us right now in our weakness to listen, not with our eyes, God, but with our ears, so that we might believe and frame our life in the truth as it is in Jesus. For Jesus' sake, we pray this, amen. Well, Adam in the garden, as, as a pattern for the one to come, chose the potential for personal power over over obedience to God. If you eat from the tree, you will be like God. And from that moment on, all of history would be the story of two men, Adam, the head of the old humanity, and Christ, the head of the new. And the fate of, and this is no exaggeration, the fate of every human being would be wrapped up in either Adam or in Christ. Because what Adam would break, Christ would mend. So at a tree, now think, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam committed the mother of all sins, and he fell into death. And at another tree, the cross, Jesus Christ obeyed his father to the uttermost, to the point of pain and weakness that no human will ever know. And there in that weakness, he conquered sin and he conquered death forever. Adam, in his thirst for more, wanted more than what was already so generously given to him. And because he wanted more, sin and death came into the world. Christ, with, with his willingness to weaken himself to the uttermost, to death, bow to death, bow to weakness, bow, bow to sin's penalty and God's wrath, he brought righteousness and peace and life into this world, the only way that it actually could come into this world. One was operating out of desire for more, the other out of the desire to save. One was rooted in power, the other in weakness. And that is the human story. That, that are the two ways to live, power or weakness. Now, if you were listening to the text being read, and if your Bible's open, you'll see that at first sight, there is a focus on power. Chapter 1, verse 17. Do you see it there? Lest the cross be emptied of its power. Chapter 1, verse 18, the message of the cross is the power of God to those who are being saved. Verse 24, chapter 1, to those whom God has called, Christ is the power of God. Chapter 2, verse 4, my message and my preaching came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Chapter 2, verse 5, final one, so that your faith might not rest on, mere, on a mere man, but on God's power. So there's five references to power. However, none of the power finds its source in any human being. All of it comes from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian power. Now, if you think about it, the idea of power makes an immediate connection with people today. I mean, frankly, it always has. So we live in a time and place that essentially worships power. Anything that can help us, power in position, power in hand, power in politics, Power in our arguments when we're conversing with people. Power in our own personal life. Power in what we have, right? Power in our egos, our ability to command a room, to command a conversation. So power in ruling over things in our life, our situations. And for some, power over ruling over people. We might purchase things to give us the appearance of power. And even some sermons, honestly, under the heading of Christian... They promise power, you know, if you just follow their steps. So the thirst for power is, is what it is the human story. 
It began with Adam and Eve exchanging disobedience for the promise of power. What was the promise? You know, take, eat, and you'll be like God. When I was working on this sermon on Wednesday afternoon, I just happened to check my email, and this is the email that I got. The heading was, Being Supreme. Okay, so being supreme, and they were selling something. And this is a quote from the email of a person who used their product. Once you start winning, I guess it's easier to continue winning, says Christian, and it's spelled with a K. (laughs) You've already had that conversation with yourself. And so what they were selling was some kind of like go juice for running, you know? So if you drink the juice, then, you know, you can just run faster than anybody on the planet. So I called my wife and I said, hey, can I order the juice? No, I'm just kidding. Power, it's, it's more intoxicating than alcohol, it's more addictive than drugs, it's more thrilling than a kiss, if you know what I mean. There's a classic quote from the 19th century Prime Minister William Gladstone. He says, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He was writing in a time and place where two things were happening. Number one, the democracy was being undermined by all these different power groups in England. And two, he was a Roman Catholic And in 1870, the the first Vatican Council decreed that absolute infallibility and so absolute power belonged to the Pope. That was the first time that decree went forth. And that troubled him. Gladstone saw that power was not only corrupting his country, but was corrupting the church. And so if that's too, like, high for you, because, you know, we're just getting off of Christmas this, this is a quote from Palpatine to Anakin Skywalker, Star Wars, Return of the Sith. The fear of losing power is a weakness of both the Jedi and the Sith. And so I think a good question that a person should always ask themselves is why? Why do I want to receive power from God? Is it power to be a witness? That's Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Power for holiness power for self-control, power to carry your cross, power to, to endure some awfully difficult situations, power to be humble in our service for Jesus? Or is it just a mask, you know, for personal ambition, a craving for just, you know, something to feed our egos, our poor, uh, self-importance, to impress, to dominate, to manipulate, to command, to, you know, power to finally be free to do whatever I want when I want? And I think this is fair to say that some people want power because they're afraid. They're afraid. That is so understandable. So they want power because they're so afraid, and power seems powerful to help them in that fear. I understand that one. I also understand this one. Some people want power because they just, you know, they want the first chair in everything. Uzziah, king of Judah, was greatly helped until he became powerful. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. And the Bible is very interested in power, but it's always power through weakness. Let me just be even more specific. Divine essential power displayed through human weakness. So we have three points we're just going to run through um, this morning. Number one, a weak message. That's Paul's first point, Christ, Christ crucified, proclaimed by weak preachers full of fear and trembling, received by weak listeners, needy people of little account. So let's start with number one, a weak message, Christ crucified. Now, if you think about it, every communicator has two basic questions they ask. First, what do I have to say? And second, how shall I say what I have to say? 
And so in the context here, first century Greco-Roman world, those two questions already had an answer. The what of communication was, listen carefully, was human philosophy. And the how of the communication was rhetoric. And so they were very good at using elaborate, extravagant uh, phrases and use of language and style. Now, in philosophy, okay, that was the what of what they were talking about. The source always began with a person, with a man and not God. So the philosopher is the power, the source behind their philosophy. Now, if that seems too high for you, just thinking about like every, every human being is a philosopher whenever we say, I just think that. So whatever we approach in life, when we begin with ourselves, I just think that at that point, you have no footnotes, no source except yourself, you're the philosopher. In the life of the church, as Paul will say later on, that can be dangerous. If you're the footnote, if you're the source, you're the philosopher, that's trouble. So some people were seeking truth as a philosopher, but they will always have the final say of what that truth is. Now, in the rhetoric or the speech of their communication, it was always meant to speak clearly, to impress, to embellish, and to make the connection between the speaker and the the, the one who he's speaking to for loyalty to the speaker alone. And Paul said no to both. In the place of human philosophy and human rhetoric, he put the cross. Because he said, verse 18, do you see it there? The cross is both the wisdom of God and the power of God. The cross is foolishness. That's our word moron. The cross is moronic to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so when you look at what Paul is saying here, Clearly what he's saying is God is the power source and Christ is the topic. Now, look at your Bible and and listen, please. If you ask the question, who took the initiative to reach us, to save us? Answer, verse 21, God did. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not and, you know, could not know God, God was pleased to, to take that saving action on our behalf. Okay, so... What was the result of God's initiative that God alone took? Answer again, verse 21. God was pleased to save those who believed. And then you say, okay, how was that initiative taken to save people? Answer, through the gospel. Verse 21 again. For since the world failed to reach God through its own wisdom, pause just for a second, look at me. That's every religion in the world. Every other religion in the world has as its source itself. Here, the source is outside the world. It's God. Again, how was the initiative taken? Answer through the gospel. For since the world failed to reach God through its own wisdom, philosophy, God was pleased, verse 21, to save us through the foolishness of what was preached. The point here is that what the world failed through its own wisdom to achieve in knowing God and knowing peace, God did. God was pleased to save believers through the folly or the foolishness of the gospel. And loved ones, the contrast is real, and it's meant to be real, and it's meant to stick out. The tra- contrast between not knowing God and being saved, and, being, and between human wisdom and the foolishness of the gospel. All right? So there's a big contrast. Not knowing God and being saved, and human wisdom and the foolishness of the gospel. Because human wisdom in the eyes, looks much stronger and much better than 
Christ crucified. And if you asked, okay, what is the foolishness of the gospel? Well, on the human level, I mean, part of it is our Savior, our King, died naked, 30 years old, as a criminal, and we say because of that naked guy on a tree, all our sins are forgiven. We have the smile of God, and we're bound to heaven. You know, now other religions have leaders. They have avatars, and they, they are portrayed as fully clothed, and they are awesome, and they are wise, and some of them are mysterious, but they're always pictured as powerful. But that is worldly wisdom. However, the Christian Savior, he has scars. He bleeds. He dies alone. There is no other religion that says that in a real point in time, God has suffered. God was crushed by people. God was tortured by people. God bled because people made him bleed. The infinite highness of the Almighty God, who says he could save the world, dies a broken man on a cross. And he takes on human darkness. No other religion says that. So I was doing my Christmas reading as I should. C.S. Lewis came across my plate on the birth of Christ. He wrote down this. Listen, among the donkeys, he actually said among the asses to make it, you know, among the donkeys, I see my Savior where I looked for hay. Get that? Where, where is this king? Right there in a pile of crud. And Paul spells it out even more in verse 22, beginning with Jews demand miraculous signs, right? So they want everything to be seen with the eyes. So they wanted a political Messiah, yes, who would drive out the Roman legions and they would see that with their eyes and they would cast them into the sea and Israel would be great again. National sovereignty of Israel returned. They wanted a revolutionary. They wanted someone with some muscle. They wanted a revolutionary to show the signs of his power, to give credibility to his task, to give credibility, because if we show power, then the people will come. And that's why, if you know your Gospels, that's why seven times Jesus was asked, what, what sign do you do that we may believe in you? Seven times, Jewish people, what sign are you going to do that we may believe in you? That's kind of the way... Some of the world works, right? Show us. Show, show us a sign that you have it, whatever it is, and we're yours. Now, that was the Jews. Now, verse 22, this is the Greeks. Greeks look for wisdom. Now, if you know anything about Greek society, you could, there is no doubt that they had a long tradition of brilliant human philosophy. They like new ideas. Who doesn't? They like speculation. And as long as, humanly speaking, the speculation seemed reasonable to them. But again, there was nothing reasonable for a man as man, but man as God in the gospel. And if you think about it, again to your Bibles, verse 31, that's why regeneration is a necessity. Paul says, it is because of him that, that you are in Christ. So the power of God is absolutely necessary in a person's conversion so that, again, verse 31, no one may boast. 
You see, a philosopher in that age, when he came to his conclusion, that was their boast. And Paul's like, no boast, only in Christ. So whether it's power in the signs and the visual in the Jewish culture or power in the mind in the Greek culture, a crucified Messiah was an oxymoron, a contradiction. Because Messiah meant power, splendor, triumph, wisdom, you know, wisdom for a powerful life. Crucifixion means weakness, humiliation, and defeat. I mean, just think about your own lives. What are the things by nature that attracts you? Groups, buildings, things, places. Most of the time, if it has something under, you know, powerful or looks impressive or appealing, most of the time we, we will run to it. Now, if you think about it, no wonder the message of the cross just provokes so many different emotions. Verse 23, to the Jews, Jesus Christ was a stumbling block. So, so they couldn't get over the fact that what seems so weak and pathetic, especially at the very end of his life, you know, when, when at the end of your life, I mean, if you're living life right at the end of your life, that's when it's all like super. It's a long life lived in the right direction should be awesome, but the cross was an insult. It was an insult to the Jewish people's pride. How could God's Messiah end his life under the condemnation of his own people? How does that happen? I mean, if so many people don't like you, then there must be something wrong with you. And then how could he end his life in a curse? Curse is everyone who, who, who hangs on a tree. And they couldn't get over that. It was a stumbling block to them. And the Gentiles, verse 23, Christ crucified was foolishness. Now, think with me about the context. In the Roman world, crucifixion was painful, but it was also humiliating. I mean, if you were crucified, it was the reserve for the worst of the worst. You were, you were a dirty, filthy, animal criminal. And just so you know, even if they committed a crime, no citizen of Rome and no free person of Rome would ever be crucified. There'd be other ways to punish them, but it wasn't a crucifixion. In fact, there's a philosopher named Caesario, and this is what he said. No Roman, Roman citizen could even look at, listen to, or think about a crucifixion. Let's just hold, let's say people held to that truth. You can't even think about the crucifixion. That means in a most deviant of way, a Roman citizen, considering the claims of Christ, would have to jump through that hurdle of, you know, you're not supposed to think about crucifixion. You don't look at it. You don't listen to about it. Don't, say, don't think about it. And then here comes the gospel, Christ crucified, right off the bat. However, verse 25, Paul writes, the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is, is wiser than man's strength. Okay, so here it is, the heat of a battery, that's the best that humans can do, Paul says, compared to the heat of the sun, the power of God. Heat of the sun, heat of a battery. And if you think about it, this idea, you know, that all religions are the same, you know, they're all pointing to the same direction, take you to the same place. I mean, how foolish, how insincere, how unthought-provoking. The cross of Jesus Christ will always be a stumbling block to those who worship power, okay? 
For those who are confident in themselves, the cross will be a stumbling block. For those who trust in their intellectual power, for those who want more outside of what Christ has given, the cross will be just a huge stumbling block for those people who trust in religious disciplines and ascetic practices to try to bring them closer to God. The cross will be a stumbling block, listen carefully, for those who simply want a better life on earth. You want a better marriage, you want a better family, a better work life. Let me tell you what the gospel says to that. The gospel says, is that all you want? Is that all you want? The gospel would say, is that it? Oh, how small your way of thinking. You see, loved ones, the cross is, is to God's people the power of God and the wisdom of God. And we're never going to grow past the cross We're going to grow deeper in it, yes. Past it, no. It's the power of God. God saves people who can't save themselves. It's the wisdom of God. Because through it, God has solved the problem. You say, well, what is God's problem? Well, he's holy, and sin can't be around him, but he's loving. He is loving, and he wants people around him. So what does he do? Well, he puts himself on the cross. He puts himself on the cross. Number one, a weak weak message, Christ crucified. Number two, proclaimed by weak preachers, (laughs) full of fear and trembling. And and that's what Paul says, doesn't he? Chapter two, verse three, do you see it there? I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Hudson Taylor, a missionary, uh, would affirm, 19th century, this is what he said. All God's giants have been weak people. And he was writing about Paul. All God's giants have been weak people. Now, that was in stark contrast to, this is chapter 10 of Corinthians, to the super apostles, right? Super, these super apostles came into the church, super because they were proud, they were self-confident, they boasted about their wisdom, their authority, their morality, and their power. They got everything right all the time. And so that would be, now listen carefully, that would be the equivalent of people these days who go around saying, you know, I'm a thousand percent sure that I always hear rightly from God. That's dangerous, let alone foolish. Now let me give you a little background here. In the Greco-Roman world, the, uh, the speaker, the, the rhetorical person was, was highly cultured and highly educated. Public debates, Public debates in law courts, even in funerals, believe it or not, they, they, they gave them opportunity to speak and to please the crowd with their verbal skills. They were called in some places sophists, wisdom speakers. So it was a lot more about style than substance. Their substance was simply human wisdom. And it was about crowd building instead of, you know, content-driven speaking. Okay? Crowd building instead of content-driven speaking. So... If the listeners liked it, that was their concern, not whether it was true. So the crowd was the authority because when the speaker spoke, they wanted to please the crowd. In order to please the crowd, not only after they, they had to use you know, their rhetorical skills, but in some sense, they had to say what the crowd wanted to hear. Says D.A. Carson, their goal was applause, their motive vanity and their casualty, truth. And that was the situation in Corinth. 
And now you have the Apostle Paul who said in chapter 1, verse 17, I don't speak with human wisdom. And I don't, chapter 2, verse 1, I don't speak with eloquence. I preach Christ. So the Corinthians, and it rubbed into the church, they were in love with human philosophy. They were in love with human power. They were in love with authority. In essence, they were in love with themselves. And of course, the speaker was in love with applause and with the crowd. And again, if you think about it, it's, that's very, very, very 21st century. Paul rejected both. In the place of human philosophy, chapter 2, verse 2, what does it say there? He resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In the place of human rhetoric, verse 3, he came to them in weakness and fear and much trembling. Uh, J.B. Phillips' translation, the nervous and rather shaky. So I have to rely on the Spirit's power. I don't think it's a stretch that Paul, if he was like time machine end to the 21st century, he probably wouldn't make it in a lot of churches. Unpromising material. I mean, you know, what mature Christian, and this is worldly wisdom, by the way, what, what mature Christian would say out loud that he's really weak and he's really nervous and he gets shaky when he preaches and talks. Don't, don't you know what it means to be filled with the Spirit, Paul? You ought to be strong. I mean, come on, man up. The world needs a muscular Christian right now. You ought to be confident. You ought to be bold. People like that. They like it when the person flex their muscle a little bit because we need some more power in the world. Paul's like, No. He wasn't afraid to admit that he was afraid. He wasn't afraid to admit that he was afraid. Now, I want you to think with me. He wasn't a pushover. He was an intellectual giant. He could speak three languages. Languages. He was well-traveled. He was well-schooled, and he was zealous. But he was afraid. He trembled. He got the shakes. By the way, will you think with me with the whole, with the physical abuse that Paul took in the name of Christ and the verbal abuse that Paul took in the name of Christ? Do you think it was, would be possible? And I'm not saying it is possible, but I'm asking you, do you think it was possible that he had some type of post-traumatic stress disorder? Do you think? Well, that's the stupidest thing that I've ever heard. Well, just hold on. Have you ever been physically persecuted for Christ? Have you ever been physically persecuted for Christ? Have you ever been verbally persecuted for Christ? And just to say, this is chapter 10, verse 10 of Corinthians and some of his critics. This is 2 Corinthians. He wasn't really much to look at. So, so now they're talking about his appearance. He wasn't much to listen to. Now they're talking about his ability. He was flawed. Now they're talking about his mind. He was disabled as a speaker. He wasn't good enough. He wasn't good enough. He wasn't good enough. Have you ever been told that you are not good enough? Have you ever been told that you are bad at what you do? That, that you are even wrong in the way that you do it? I have. It is one of the worst things. But at the same time, it's one of the best things that can happen to you. It's the worst thing that can happen to you because, well, you know it's happening. <laughs> But it's the best thing 
Because at that point, you are aware of your need as a human being, as a preacher, for the Holy Spirit to bring people in Christ, not in spite of the evidence of your frailty, but in light of the evidence of your frailty. Do you understand that one? For the Holy Spirit to bring people to Jesus Christ, not in spite of the evidence of your frailty, but in light of the evidence of your frailty. Because at that point, you know that only the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, opens people's eyes to the gospel. You've got to speak clearly, but you're not the hero of the sermon, if you would. You're not the hero of the talk. And so then you know that in your persuasion, or rather behind your persuasion, is the power of God. Because only a power of God in the preaching of the gospel, and not great rhetoric, can give sight to the blind and give life to the dead. It always comes down to Christ and him crucified, preached in the power of the Spirit, for the Spirit can demonstrate his power. So that every good preacher makes an open confession, makes a private confession. Confession, help me, Father God. I am weak, and sometimes I am really afraid and even get the shakes, and sometimes I'm so disappointed in my ability to do this. But God, have mercy on me. And God, have mercy on my listeners. And may God, the Holy Spirit, demonstrate chapter 2, verse 4, his power to save. So that verse 5, do you see it there? Your faith might not rest on a mere man, but on God's power. Before we get to the final point, it's been said, what you save people with is what you save them to. Okay, get it? What you save them with is what you save them to. Paul says the Spirit's power in the preaching of the gospel by weak, fearful, shaky, not-so-great preachers, that's my with. The gospel is where I want to take them to. Final point. Number one, a weak message, Jesus Christ crucified, proclaimed by weak preachers full of fear and trembling. Number three, received by weak listeners. Sorry about that. <laughs> Needy people of little account. You see it there, chapter 1, verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of noble birth. I mean, you, you want to say, if you were them and you're, and you're hearing that read in the church, you're like, Paul, did you have to write that, you know, and say it out loud for all time? Now everyone's going to know we're like this. I mean, that would be the equivalent of your pictures showing pictures of you, your parents, excuse me, your parents showing pictures of you and your diapers and your boyfriend or girlfriend are over at the house and they're looking at those pictures. That'd be kind of embarrassing. And you see it there when Paul says, think of what you were when you were called. The, the Greek word for think, it means turn your thoughts, direct your mind, contemplate, look deeply into how this all started. In other words, don't you forget who you were before Christ. Don't you forget where you came from before Christ. Don't you forget it was him who brought you out of that mess. And even though sometimes you like to crawl back into that mess, even after he pulled you out of that mess, sometimes that mess feels like home when it's not. Think about how it all started. And if you think about how it all started, and you're honest, then there's only one person who you would boast about. 
And that means when we look at each other, and that means when we look at the outside world, our eyes are a lot more humble and a lot more softer. Our minds and hearts to that same end. Now, if you look at there, Paul says the Corinthians, they, they admired three things, human wisdom, human power, and the status in those things. And reading that text, they didn't have human wisdom, they didn't have human power, and they didn't have human status. Verse 26, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. It was the opposite, verse 27, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. You know, God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify things that are, and again, for that no one will boast before him. And if we ask the question, okay, why did God do that? Why did God choose foolish, weak, and lowly people? Again, verse 29, so that no one may boast before him, all right? The credit for their salvation, our salvation, would belong to God alone. Verse 30, we, and by the way, we used to ask our kids to memorize this verse. It is because of him, God, that you are in Christ Jesus. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption, okay? Christ is our righteousness, Christ is our holiness, and Christ is our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. What a, what a timely, helpful wor- word to a church as ours in the place that we are now. What a timely, helpful word. What a timely, helpful wor- word to the world who thinks that flexing their strength and boasting about itself is the way. You know, that's the way you get ahead. That's the way you move ahead. That's the way you advance. That's the way you get things. That's the way you get people. A world that thinks to boast about you as you, that's like medicine for you. That's not true. To think to think that we're the source and we're the key of truth. And we think it's a new problem. It's a really, really old problem. Jeremiah, Old Testament, let not the wise person boast of their wisdom or the strong person boast of their strength or the rich person boast of their riches. But let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord, that is, that I am the master, that I am the key behind every good thing. So boasting is good for us as long as the boasting is about Jesus Christ. And by the way, there's a green light for boasting about others. We're going to learn that in a few weeks. Honor others above yourself, Romans 12. That's good. But it's a red light to boast about ourselves. To boast about ourselves. So the Corinthian church, kind of most of them were drawn from the low street. They weren't influencers. They, they weren't super intelligent. They didn't come from the high street. Kind of like what Ben read from Isaiah 53, there was no beauty or majesty that, that would attract us to them. Kind of like insignificant, uneducated, lower middle class, middle class people of not 
much account, probably most of the people in the church were slaves. And the fact that the gospel reached them and saved them and changed them is a dramatic illustration of the power of God. And clearly, God has a strong eye to the weak. God has a strong eye to the weak, so it seems to me that it is to our advantage to be weak and to remain weak. Now, that is not to say that God does not save the rich and powerful. Of course he does. But it doesn't matter. God will have no one boast before him. Let me close with two things. One, an op-ed piece, New York Times, December 24th, 19, or excuse me, 2019. Peter Winner, believe it or not, is the person who wrote this. If you are wholly unfamiliar with the life of Jesus and listen only to what many Christians in America say, now mind you, this is the New York Times. If you, if, if you listen only to what many Christians in America say today, you can be forgiven for thinking that the most important thing Christianity values is worldly power, the power to control and compel, to impose one, one's will on others, to vanquish one's enemies. Blessed are the political powerful and the well-connected, you might assume, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The birth and life of Jesus Christ shatters that narrative. Those of us of the Christian faith, believe that the Christmas day represents the moment of God's incarnation when this broken world becomes his home. But it was not an entrance characterized by privilege, comfort, public celebration, or self-glorification. It was marked by lowliness, obscurity, humility, fragility. The circumstances of Jesus' birth were calculated to establish his detachment from the power and authority in human terms, wrote Malcolm Muggeridge, a 20th century British journalist who converted late in life to Christianity. That could be said not just about Jesus' birth, but also his entire life, which was in many respects an inversion of what the world, including much of the Christian world, prizes. Power, power, power. And then the final thing I read before I left Wednesday night, another New York Times article. This is the title, Arrest, Beating, and Prayers, the Persecution of Indian Christians. And so this is what it reads. Evangelical Christian groups are making inroads among lower caste Hindus albeit quietly. In other words, in India right now, the biggest group of converts are the lowest of the lowest of the lowest. Pastors hold secret services at night. They conduct secret baptisms. They pass audio Bibles that look like little transistor radios so that the illiterate farmers can secretly listen because they can't read, listen to the scripture as they plow their fields. Think of what you were when you were called. Think of what you were when you were called. If you, if you are a spectator in Christianity, you will understand none of this truth. <laughs> weak message. Christ crucified, proclaimed by weak preachers, full of fear and trembling, received by weak hearers, socially supplies despise people of no or very little account. Triple weakness. 
so that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit can meet that weakness to display his power. And believe me, he still does. It is the hardest lesson for humanity to learn. You can't. You can't. You're not strong enough. But God has. And God would be so glad to carry you this new year. And God would be so glad to carry you not only this new year, but for all eternity. And oh, the places we will go together. So weakness in Christ doesn't mean do nothing. It means do everything you should in the power of Jesus Christ. Thanks for your attention this morning. Let's pray. God and Father, what a perfect setting this morning to preach this sermon. We thank you that with all our hearts, you are, you are our great lover, and you bore all our guilt on the cross. May the cross of Jesus Christ sweeten every bitterness in our lives and encourage us with hope in every trial and in every situation. And may you, God, connect us again and again to the true vine, Jesus Christ, our only source of strength and our only source of power. Lord Jesus, we, we have died with you. We have been risen with you. And we are seated, Ephesians 2, we are seated with you in heavenly places. So I pray that you would increase our joy in the cross of Christ, that you would mind, remind us as a congregation there are boundless stores of grace for us. Let it flow now, God, and let it flow every day till this year closes out and every day in the new year to whatever time we've been given. And protect us, God, as a people and as a, as a congregation from being deluded by worldly wisdom and being deluded by those who walk in their own wisdom and walk in their own thoughts and walk in their own strengths, including if that is just us and our flesh. Destroy all that. And may the power of the cross and the wisdom of Christ, may it be ours to enjoy every, every day ever increasing. And Father, we pray all this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, and our good, good, good friend. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening this week. If you were helped or encouraged by the sermon, please share it with others. For additional information, visit us online at westquestatchapel.com. There you'll find other resources to connect you to Christ in His church. Also, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel. We hope you join us again next week as we grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.